So good morning. I am very happy to be in Concord with you again uh, from the Urban Ministry. Concord is one of our member congregations, and there are so many ways that this congregation has been involved with and supported our work. I want to thank the Reverend Liz Weber for welcoming me so beautifully this morning, giving me a blessing before I came here, which I deeply appreciate. Thank you. I want to just uh, thank those who have been part of our community and helped uh, build bridges between Concord and Roxbury, including Tony Rodriguez and Janet Donovan, Wendy Holt, Alec Walker and Caitlin Selly, Leslie Fisher. I want to celebrate all you who do that work with us, of, of connecting us. I want to celebrate the work that you do to support your Funderburg Scholars Program, which supports the young people who come through uh, our youth program. This is led by Loretta Ho Sherblum, and it, it does such great and important work for the young people who graduate uh, from high school in our neighborhood and go on to college. And I, I also want to thank you. You generously support us every year through a social action grant, so thank you very much. That uh, support and that funding is very important to allow us to continue the work that we do. And I especially uh, want to lift up a very special supporter of ours, who is your music director, Beth Norton. She is a particular, a long-standing champion of the work of the Urban Ministry and has been just uh, enormously helpful in serving on our, our meeting house committee for the restoration of our meeting house uh, and just been a faithful champion through thick and thin. So thank you, Beth. At 3 p.m. on Sunday, August 25th, the bell at First Church in Roxbury rang for four minutes. Our bell, forged in the foundry named for freedom runner Paul Revere, rang in harmony with bells across the nation, a harmony marking a horror. The day 400 years ago that enslaved Africans were first brought to these shores. The Africans, 20 to 30 of them, landed in Port Comfort, Virginia. They were purchased by the Jamestown colonists from British pirates. It was 13 years before First Church in Roxbury, one of the earliest Puritan gathering sites, was founded in what we now call John Elliott Square, the site that the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry now inhabits. The National Bell Ringing was organized by the National Park Service as a day of remembrance and healing. We wanted to remember, too. We planned no special events, just this. The sound of the bell tolling above Roxbury, the historic heart of Boston's African-American community, above the site where Native Americans once dwelled, the place Puritans gathered in 1631 and worshipped, and where the Reverend John Eliot came to convert the natives to Christianity and translated the Bible into their native language of Algonquin. The bell rang above the town called America's first suburb, where affluent Bostonians repaired for the season and where the revolution began. This was where the Patriot troops watched the British during the siege of Boston, where men promised their lives in exchange for a nation in which all were created equal. This was where William Dawes began a ride parallel to Paul Revere's to warn that the British were coming. 
The bell on this otherwise quiet Sunday rang above the land where eventually the Jewish immigrants came and then the Irish and then the African-Americans. The bell marked 400 years since our nation began its deal with the devil, slavery in exchange for prosperity. The writer Nicole Hannah-Jones in an article for the New York Times special supplement this summer, the 1619 Project, described slavery simply and starkly. She wrote, Enslaved people could not legally marry. They were barred from learning to read and restricted from meeting privately in groups that had no claim on their own children who could be bought, sold, and traded away from them on auction blocks alongside furniture and cattle or behind storefronts that advertised Negroes for sale. Enslavers and the courts did not honor kinship ties to mothers, siblings, cousins. In most courts, they had no legal standing. Enslavers could rape or murder their property without legal consequence. Enslaved people could own nothing, will nothing, and inherit nothing. They were legally tortured, including by those working for Thomas Jefferson himself. They could be worked to death, and often were, in order to produce the highest profits for the white people who owned them, she wrote. Our bell rang on August 25th. There were no words because what words could there be? A small group gathered on our grounds to listen, black, white, silent. One of our staff members, who is African-American, came to listen with them. After one man, white, approached her. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry. Thank you, she said. I know it's not your fault, yours personally. We are all part of the story, she told him, and we have to figure it out together. The tolling bell was a reminder, a place to begin. Much of the work of the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry happens on this historic spot in Roxbury. Have folks, how many folks have been to our campus in Roxbury? So quite a number. And those who haven't, we'd love for you to join us. The Urban Ministry has operated in Boston for 190 years and for the past several decades focused our work in Roxbury. We are grounded in our UU values and sustained through the support of 50 member congregations like Concord. Our Renewal House Domestic Violence Shelter operates nearby. There we provide material and spiritual support for survivors fleeing abuse. On our John Elliott Square campus, we offer a workforce development program for survivors. Workforce programs abound in Boston, but ours is unique. In addition to providing professional skill building, we offer meditation, yoga, art, healing, and reflection. We provide high school students of color a wider path to their dreams through our after-school program, offering tutoring, college visits, and help with college applications. And we live into the place we inhabit, the historic 
heart of Roxbury, atop a hill that offers a stunning view of the shimmering office buildings in downtown Boston. The Urban Ministry inherited this campus in 1976 from the First Church in Roxbury Congregation, which had worshipped there since 1632. Once robust and wealthy, membership had dwindled. White flight from the city to suburbs had hollowed out the congregation, leaving just a handful who lived outside what had by then become the heart of the African-American community in Boston. Roxbury's story was a story that was repeated in cities across the country as urban neighborhoods became home to immigrants and migrating African-Americans and as racist business practices like redlining and mortgage discrimination dragged on these minority neighborhoods, as white, as white families feared losing their property values and feared to who was moving in, they moved out to the suburbs. And home ownership and therefore wealth creation was kept out of the hands of black families. Finally, the congregation that had worshipped on this spot for more than 300 years folded and gave its property to the urban ministry. The property included abundant green space and two historic buildings, the fifth meeting house built on the site, constructed in 1804 and now the city's oldest surviving wood frame church, and a parish hall called Putnam Chapel. This is our location centered in Roxbury and made up of member congregations in affluent and mostly white suburbs. We are in a neighborhood where the average lifespan is 59 years old, 30 years less than it is in Back Bay, just one mile away. It's in a city where the average household median net worth for white families is $247,000, the amount that folks have after you subtract your debts, what you actually own. And for black families, the median net worth is $8. And we are within a school district in which even the valedictorians who are black and brown-skinned struggle to then graduate from college. When I arrived at the Urban Ministry after 10 years of serving the homeless community in Rhode Island, I didn't expect to be here with you talking about race. In the homeless community, we served a disproportionate number of people of color, but we spoke of poverty and housing rights, not about race. And I expected the work of the Urban Ministry to be likewise, providing programs for those in need, and that is Partly so, but the heartbeat underneath was harder and bolder. It wasn't a program, it was a question. What does it mean to be a white-led organization encircled by white suburban congregations and located in the center of a neighborhood shaped by racism and segregation? How do we mend and repair what has been grievously broken? What is asked of us? A place to begin is listening, and I began there. 
I began with listening to the stories of people of color in Boston denied jobs because of their race. I began with sitting with a black educator who told how black people are hired by whites to watch their babies, a practice rooted in slavery, but still don't trust them to educate their school-aged children. I began with listening to State Representative Byron Rushing speak of how contractors in the 1970s dumped their construction debris in vacant Roxbury lots and how the city ignored it until the piles of trash were set afire. I began as I walked with a Roxbury-born artist who spoke of the abundance of bronze statues of white men throughout the city, and wouldn't it be nice, she said quietly, looking over her shoulder at me, to see statues of African Americans, too. And I began noticing everywhere, yes. It began with reading on the neighborhood listserv, a neighbor tell how home ownership had been stolen from his grandfather, and with it his family's opportunity for wealth creation when urban renewal steamrolled the family home in Roxbury. And hearing local folks described urban renewal in their words as the Negro removal plan. These stories have been searing gifts and weighty blessings, guiding me daily to learn more. In his essay, A Case for Reparations, the author, the author Ta-Nehisi Coates tells of an African-American man whose, stories, whose story illustrates the grip of racism from slavery into today. Clyde Ross was born in Mississippi and migrated to Chicago. After slavery, his family built a farm which was taken from them through unscrupulous business practices that cheated black families and that were enabled by a legal system that did not protect African Americans. Clyde's family was reduced then to sharecropping, and they were then cheated of goods by the landowner. Clyde was bright but unable to attend a more challenging school because the bus that took white children there did not take him. He moved north to the in the 1940s and tried to buy a home in the 60s. Whites, though, through such measures as restrictive covenants and even violence, kept black families out of their neighborhoods, and FHA rules made it near impossible for black families to secure legitimate loans. Coates writes, the American real estate industry believed segregation to be a moral principle. As late as 1950, the National Association of Real Estate Boards Code of Ethics warned that a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood any race or nationality or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values, end quote. The story of Clyde Ross is the story of race in America. White supremacy did not abate with abolition. It took new and innovative forms fueled by racial fear and hate. Hannah Jones in the New York Times 1619 Project wrote this. 
Despite the guarantees of equality in the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court landmark Plessy v. Ferguson decision in 1896 declared that racial segregation of black Americans was constitutional. With the blessing of the nation's highest court and no federal will to vindicate black rights, starting in the late 1800s, southern states passed a series of laws meant to make slavery a racial caste system permanent by denying black people political power, social equality, and basic dignity. They passed literacy tests to keep black people from voting and created all-white primaries for elections, she wrote and continued. Black people were prohibited from serving on juries or testifying in courts against a white person. South Carolina prohibited white and black textile workers from using the same doors. Oklahoma forced phone companies to segregate phone booths. Georgia made it illegal for black and white people to be buried next to one another in the same cemetery. In the North, white politicians implement policies that segregated black people into slum neighborhoods and into inferior black schools, she wrote. The racism that slavery birthed has been a shapeshifter through the centuries. From slavery to voter suppression, from lynchings to segregation, from the plantation to, to today's modern mass incarceration. From north to south, from city to suburb, through redlining and through urban renewal, from Savannah to Chicago to Boston and Roxbury. This summer I visited the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence to see an exhibit on mending and repair in the climate control gallery, case glass cases displayed fabrics like a child's Japanese kimono found in the years after the atomic bomb had dropped on Hiroshima. Repaired so carefully, I had to bend over the glass and crane my neck to see the stitches. And there were fabrics with colorful patches embroidered. There was an English abolitionist textile with scenes of the slave trade. I thought about the damage to these fabrics and the hope that arose from witnessing that if you can see the tear clearly, if you can see its dimensions, then there is something that can be done. Repair, one quotation in the gallery read, is the creative destruction of brokenness. At the same time I was visiting the exhibit, Congress was holding long overdue hearings on reparations. Tanahisi Coates was among those making a case. In his essay, he wrote this Now we have half stepped away from our long centuries of despoilment, promising never again, but still we are haunted. It is as though we have run up a credit card bill and having pledged to charge no more remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. We must imagine a new country, he wrote. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequence is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he is not living a drunken lie. 
Reparations beckon us to reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is, the work of fallible humans. He wrote, What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that will lead to a spiritual renewal. Reparations would mean the end of scarfing hot dogs on the 4th of July while denying the facts of our heritage. Reparations would mean the end of yelling patriotism while waving a Confederate flag. Reparations would mean a revolution of the American consciousness, a reconciling of our self-image as the great great democratizer with the facts of our history, he wrote. This national conversation and acknowledgement, like the bells tolling from north to south and east to west, is a powerful remembrance and a call. But this need to mend and repair cannot only happen out there on the national stage. It must also happen here, right here where we are. What does repair mean right here? Any seamstress or physician knows that the first step is carefully examining the gash. The fact of our location in Roxbury on a prominent historic campus given over by a white congregation that died by white flight, in a community mired in our city's racist past, is both a question and the beginning of an answer. Over the past five years, we have been working to restore our historic meeting house that we inherited, which is iconic and beloved in Roxbury. Look up Roxbury in Wikipedia, and you will see a picture of our meeting house illustrating it. During the arson fires of the 1970s, which saw many buildings in Roxbury burn to the ground for insurance money, some by firefighters later charged, the African-American community in Roxbury protected First Church. One story tells of an African-American grandmother who sat in our front yard all night with a rifle in her lap to guard the Roxbury meeting house. Three years ago, we finished restoration of the outside of this elegant structure to its former beauty. We knew that Roxbury deserved a well-kept meeting house in its center as much as Lexington or Hingham or Concord do. We began opening our doors wider as a gathering space for Roxbury groups who are working to reduce wealth disparity, who are working for environmental justice in communities of color, who are working to fight displacement caused by gentrification. And we gather UUs from congregations like Concord to invest in Roxbury businesses and cultural institutions. We've done holiday shopping at an Afrocentric market in Dudley Square, attended a performance of Black Nativity, toured and encouraged joining the National Center for Afro-American Artists. Last year, we began focusing our after-school program on cultivating an appreciation for history, especially Roxbury's rich history. The same stories of Roxbury that we learn in the suburbs that it's dangerous and broken have been inhaled by the children growing up there, too. We tell another story of Roxbury's historic and cultural richness, its resilience and its beauty. 
Young people train as neighborhood tour guides, telling about Marcus Garvey, after whom Marcus Garvey Elder Housing across the street is named, or civil rights activist Melnia Cass, after whom the boulevard is named. Every story is one more stitch. And we continue transforming our meeting house, reclaiming it as a center for this community there now. We will begin restoring the meeting house interior over the next few years, creating a place of beauty that offers arts and humanities to Roxbury and raising up the artistry of Roxbury. And we will be, during that time, seeking truths about our own history in this space as we go. We've told the story of the Puritan minister, John Elliott, called Apostle to the Indians. We need, too, to hear the stories of the Native people impacted by his arrival. We need to hear where in our historic building did enslaved people sit. Did the ministers own slaves? Where did the congregation stand on abolition? What happened when Roxbury became a community of color? Were people of color welcomed or excluded by the white congregation that gave us this space? We need to see and hear a fuller truth. And I know that in Concord, you too are doing some of this important work. At 3 o'clock Sunday, August 25th, the church bell at First Church Roxbury rang for four minutes. Our bell, forged in the foundry named for freedom runner Paul Revere, rang in harmony with bells across the nation, a harmony marking a horror, the day 400 years ago that enslaved Africans were first brought to these shores. May we keep ringing that bell May we keep remembering, may we keep listening, and may we keep mending. Amen, and may it be so.